0: Welcome to the Battleground, Wisconsin. My name is Matt Bruskin. I'm the Deputy Director here at Citizen Action, and welcome to another week from Wisconsin. Whoa, our panel is light as we get started today. As everybody knows, Rebecca Lynch is on hiatus, and Robert Craig is at a conference. He will hopefully be joining us uh, midway through the show, but can't can't start with us. We are fortunate to have our guest panelist, Claire Zaki, our Healthcare Director here at Citizen Action, with us. Claire, how are you doing?
1: I'm great.
0: Well, Claire, you were such a hit. We've decided to have <laughs> you back with all your knowledge on healthcare, but also just in general, um, your vast political knowledge. Um, before Robert joins us, and uh, we're also going to have another guest, uh, Supreme Moraguna is going to join us. He is Milwaukee County Supervisor and is helping lead the uh, joint Milwaukee County-Milwaukee City Task Force on Climate. Uh, we'll, we'll talk more about that with uh, Supervisor uh, Moore. Um, Claire, before Robert joins us, though, we're going to talk about impeachment, and we're going to talk about the Marquette Poll. Uh, I wanted to get a clean shot on the Marquette poll before Robert, the poll hater, joins us. Robert (laughs) loves to come on and tell us about all the problems with polls, which we generally agree with. But nonetheless, the new Marquette poll came out this week. We like to talk about it because it is sort of really the only poll gold standard poll that tests things over time, and there's certainly interesting news, particularly about impeachment. So let's start there, Claire. Um, Impeachment this week has certainly... um, it's been very interesting because of Sundland's testimony in particular. Uh, we record Thursday morning, Wednesday. Um, the facts appear to be getting a lot worse for Trump in terms of the testimony, uh, but I'm not sure it's necessarily changing uh, the general dynamic. But I uh, wanted to get your general thoughts, Claire, on uh update on impeachment.
1: Yeah, I did watch um, Gordon Sondland's testimony yesterday, and I think uh, it's it's incredibly interesting for a number of reasons. Uh, one, you could tell that his testimony was both meaningful and frustrating for both parties, right? Um, he's a complicated witness, and, and we can't forget that he actively still works for Trump, right? Yeah, like and, he, and
0: gave a lot of money to the guy, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah millions.
1: millions of dollars, right? Um, and um, so he like like I th- I'm pretty sure he left the impeachment hearings to catch a plane back to Brussels because he's the ambassador to the U.N. Right. Um, and so so he's he's just this sort of ball of, of contradictions and complications. But but overall, his testimony is, is kind of a turning point in um, the impeachment and I, I can understand why that would be. Uh, we have been hearing from other uh, members, um, high-level um, diplomats um, in the Trump administration, um, uh, long-term diplomats with the State Department, um, but folks who did not quite have direct interaction with President Trump. And here we have an ambassador who does have direct um, interaction with President Trump. And these previous diplomats have been saying sort of all along, almost like Gordon Sondland's the guy. Like Gordon Sondland's the guy who was doing this sort of shadow diplomacy, who was doing this irregular diplomacy. Um, it was it was, it was, was all him, right? We're, we're kind of throwing him under the bus. Like, we, like we're the good guys. Over here, drawn to work in the regular, the regular way of things, trying to get military aid to to Ukraine. And Gordon Gordon's the guy who's working with Trump in this sort of a regular path. And I think Gordon got sick of. I think Stalin got sick of being thrown onto the bus. And he was like, "No, man, there is no, there is no irregular." Um, a regular government, a regular diplomacy here because everybody was in the loop. He's like, there could only be in a regular thing if we're not all on the same page. And he's like, literally everybody knew what I was doing and what the president wanted to do.
0: Yeah, I think that's what was the most shocking. I suggested maybe this is... He's he's the John Dean of this investigation in terms of having the inside, actually having been involved in the conversations and revealing, like, uh, look... It was almost kind of like, look, I'm not going to be a dupe anymore, right? Like, it's very clear that at the time, maybe I thought (laughs) one thing, but uh, now that he has is able to look in totality, that he's basically like, look, this is obvious. It was all going on. And all these people who said that it wasn't, that's not true. They all knew that... There was essentially a quid pro quo and that Trump was conditioning the yeah. the resources. And and so that's why he's really, really important. You had some more to say, Claire?
1: Yeah, well so I just want to riff off of what you're yeah. saying about the quid pro quo, because I think the argument the Republicans are gonna make coming out of this hearing is that and, and Sondland to his credit is is trying to be honest, right? He says, you know, Trump never explicitly Said to me, "I want a quid pro quo." Right, and Republicans are saying, "I'm
0: not sure he knew that word existed before." Right, it, <laughs> it was created. Well, well uh, Stalin says, "Like for, we communicate in four letter words, <laughs> yeah, basically,"
1: right. and everybody laughed. And, I, and I, like I was like, "Yeah, I totally can see that." But anyways, yeah. yes. So, and so Republicans are really harping on this, and what Stalin keeps going back to is he didn't need to say it to me. Right, there is a preponderance of evidence. I spent months. And months trying to make something happen, trying to get traction, and it just didn't go anywhere. And the only possible explanation is that this quid pro quo does exist, and and so I am saying it declaratively. I I'm saying it unequivocally that yes, it was there. And so Republicans are going to keep going back to, well, you didn't hear him say it, and but, but like that's not how court cases work. Like people lie in real life. You have to build a case. You build, um, you, you know, you take sort of assumptions and, and you add evidence to them and, and you're left with a full picture of what happened. And in his real life, I believe Sondland that that's, that's what he did, that it became clear to him over the course of several months that, that this was not in his head, that this was real.
0: Yeah. And huh. so uh, one other thing that I wanted to get your comments on that came out of the testimony from him yesterday or on Wednesday was... Was uh, Ron Johnson? He explicitly pointed out that he informed Ron Johnson of the fact that there that this quid pro quo existed, and was very clear with him. And um, this may help explain why Ron Johnson has been behaving the way he has been over the last couple of weeks. But in particular, this week, just just laying into you know laying into him, just just going off and. Um, now we know why, because he actually has evidence that Johnson knew, and and is now trying to change uh, his position. Claire,
1: yeah, um, I think that we're gonna probably see more of that, right? Like people, I think people assumed that Sondland was gonna get up there and and throw himself on the pyre and then or on on the sword and, <laughs> and 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 protect some people in government, but. But he didn't. He, he was like, I'm not going to let y'all throw me under the bus anymore. If I'm going down, I'm taking everybody down with me. Or at least I'm not going to lie for people. Um, and, um, you know, maybe that comes from not being a career politician, right? He's from the outside. He's a hotelier. And um, <laughs> and he's he's got, he's got a life outside of government to think about. And I understand that. Um, and to your point about Ron Johnson, um, I think... I think it's going to be really interesting to see how this plays out in Wisconsin. Um, we're going to talk about the Marquette poll in a bit. So, you know, what really matters for Ron Johnson is what happens here in Wisconsin and how people here in Wisconsin think. Um, but if, but if, if this impeachment trial. Um, or hearings continues to get under his skin and and Johnson's behavior continues to get more and more erratic and he kind of implicates himself through his erratic behavior. I'm okay with that. Right? Like I want to see how this plays out. What what do you think?
0: Well, I, I think Chuck Todd needs to call him and get him hooked up for for the show this Sunday, because that is exciting television. Uh, Ron Johnson unscripted on national TV on a Sunday morning. Um, I, I hope that happens. Uh, we're going to have to continue to watch. Um, he's in obviously a bizarre position where it appears he not only was on the inside, he was there, you know, had had a lot of conversations, and, and certainly had it laid out very clear to him uh, th- that there was a quid pro quo, and also is in the Senate, right? And may actually uh, be there essentially on the jury. And he is, to this point, continues to insist that he will not step down, and that he will continue uh, to to be a part of the Senate Senate jury. Um, before we go to break, I do want to transition this conversation because you can go elsewhere for all the details about the impeachment and start to talk about the political implications of it. Because obviously, it's an incredible it, it is a political um, vehicle. Uh, up until now, and it appears it has not really changed, and this has still in, been incredibly partisan with Republicans generally all staying lockstep behind Trump with a few exceptions. But most importantly, the public um, continues to be uh, very strongly with Trump in terms of the Republican voters. And uh, we're going to dive into the Marquette poll after the break. But just to set it up, the new Marquette poll came out yesterday. And it spent a lot of time diving into impeachment. Um, and it found that levels of support for impeachment here in Wisconsin are down. And I do want to point out, I'll do my best Robert here, this is all within the margin of error. We're, the margin of error of this poll is just over four, four points. And so obviously, the previous polls are similar. So if you have a movement of three, four points, right? Between the two, this could just be air, okay? Uh, but it's still noteworthy. And what's most noteworthy, and when we get back from the break, Claire, I want you to talk about this: is what's happening amongst Democrats. Um, the support for Democrats for the impeachment is down, um, and it's and it's down in a way that I would say is beyond margin of error. Or at least it's interesting. We're talking about it like moving like six eight points, where you have solid and leaning Democrats. Uh, becoming less supportive of impeachment, um, so we're going to take a break. But when we come back, we're going to dive into this and the implications for impeachment, um, and and just we'll talk about some other stuff related to the poll. You're listening to the Battleground Wisconsin, where Citizen Action. You can find us at citizenactionwi.org. Welcome back to the Battleground Wisconsin, where Citizen Action. You can find us at citizenactionwi.org. We're talking about the new Marquette poll that came out this week. It is, for better or worse, the gold standard in polling here because, um, uh, one, they have fairly large sample size, and it's been over time. And so we can look at things. And before the break, we mentioned that impeachment support is down, particularly amongst Republicans. Uh, there's, It's down just slightly amongst re- uh, Republicans, excuse me, amongst Democrats. Um, but it's, it's the movement is really happening among Democrats. Claire, thoughts on on this phenomenon?
1: Um, I think that, and, and hope this maybe just me being optimistic, right? But um, I, I think that when things are shiny and new and exciting, people tend to sort of gravitate towards them and get really excited about them. And then, as processes play out and people's attentions wane and and go elsewhere, it's it's easy to. Um, kind of of forget uh, why you were excited about something in the first place. Um, So I, you know, this doesn't doesn't surprise me a whole lot. Um, I think that we'll see that spike um as we reach sort of peaks in the impeachment process so um you know when hearings wrap when it transitions to the senate um when senate arguments sort of start and end right i mean i think i think as people pay attention they remember and they hear sort of summaries of everything and they you know you run through the highlights on cable tv where you see you know the greatest hits and then you remember oh yeah i was mad about this or something like that um so that doesn't entirely surprise me. I think we'll see them go up and down again. What do you think? So,
0: I, again, some of this could be air and sampling, but probably not. Look, here's my thoughts on this. I, I believe that Democrats overall really are unsure on impeachment as it relates to the political implications for 2020 election. Mm-hmm. Okay, I think that is, and that's. A lot of people's primary concern. I think everyone would would be Democrats, I'm saying. They'd be fine and great if he was impeached and actually could be removed and was gone, right? Like next year, fine. That's great. But I think everyone gets that there's an election just in November and that we have a real legitimate chance to beat this guy. And I think there's a lot of consternation among Democrats as to the strategy and whether impeachment helps or hurts our ability to win the election next year. And I'm convinced that that as Democrats watch this impeachment play out and are just aghast at what they hear, and there's just a complete two different worlds on facts and what's happening, and there is virtually no movement amongst the Republican base, and this poll shows it, and certainly in Wisconsin. And again, the poll would have been through last week, so it wouldn't include any of the testimony this week. But the truth is... I think Democrats are responding to the fact that they're starting to realize it doesn't matter how much facts are going to come out. The Republicans are not going to impeach him. He's going to be here. And that this just ends up, if we can't remove him, hurting us politically and that it's not seem to be... Um, It's not it's not impressing upon anyone. And so they just I think they're it's their own politicking in their head and they're moving away from impeachment because they just think there's other things we ought to be talking about that would be more effective at beating Trump. Your thoughts.
1: Yeah, I have a lot of thoughts. Um, And as you're saying that it's it's reminding me of how those how those how those feelings could be particularly strong in a state like Wisconsin. Where we're still feeling the effects of the recall elections um, that started in 2011 and 2012 and how, you know, we took our best, strongest shot um, at recalling some Republican state senators and Scott Walker. Um, and that didn't go the way we hoped it would go, and it had lasting effects um, in our political environment, and in, in hyper-partisanship, in bad feelings between neighbors and family members. Um, you know, it was certainly bad luck that it happened at the same time as redistricting, and so we're feeling the effects of, of our hyper-gerrymandered districts. Um, I remember I worked on Sandy Pasha's race when she was challenging Alberta Darling during that time, and they took her district in the redistricting process. It's like they put a nail in the middle of it and hit it with a hammer and fractured it. Took little pieces, put it in all the surrounding districts, and created a new district with her number out in Menominee Falls, I think, right? And so, I think in Wisconsin, we we have a very recent memory of how challenging um, or the of negative consequences that can come from playing this game. Um, I, I am of the opinion that, um, you know, we should stay stay this path because we I think we shouldn't give a pass to such horrendous behavior. But I think that um, I completely understand and the feelings are valid of folks who are like, there's a bigger fish to fry here and, and we need to stay focused on that and, and think strategically about what will help us achieve that goal.
0: Yeah, I mean, the minute you start to come to the conclusion that there's absolutely no way the Senate's going to remove him from office you can very quickly move to like okay well like my end goal is to get rid of this guy right and i'm not saying all democrats that's their end goal but like i think that's sort of a baseline um and you start to think well this is not the way to go and i i think it's reflecting that because there's been absolutely no fact base that would make democrats less for impeachment right it, it it's got to be a strategic analysis um and b- possibly brought out of frustration. I mean, it's that's been our experience. It's like we're living in two different worlds. And it's been that way for a while, where it seems like there's two different sets of facts. And you look at it, and you're just like, I cannot believe we're witnessing the same testimony and having the same response, right? And so I don't know. That's my thoughts. Uh, Claire, you had final thoughts on that?
1: Oh, I just had a couple interesting things about the poll that we haven't talked about that I thought we might might mention. so so certainly um, support for impeaching and removing Trump is highest amongst Democrats. So amongst people who lean Democrat or solidly Democrat, the support is 73 or a, uh, to 81%. For Republicans and lean Republicans, it's 4% and 7% respectively. But when you look at the question, did Trump ask for investigation of his political rivals, Republicans and Lee Republicans are both 29% for a yes he did ask and I think that is so fascinating because that is one of the one of the core charges of this investigation right is that like you should not use the presidency for your own political advantage right that like that like that is just a a really big for me like moral ethical issue and I think for a lot of the country it is but if but if you look at these numbers, that means that there are a sizable number of Republicans and people who lean Republican who say, I believe a third of all, almost a third of all Republicans are like, I believe that he did this thing. And I don't care. And it doesn't matter. <laughs> and and that is so astounding to me. It's both it's both astounding and totally believable.
0: And, and that leads that part of what i'm saying right and then if if you have that fact base you're like okay this is going nowhere and if it actually will hurt us beating trump right so maybe that's part of what we're seeing and why we're seeing this amongst uh, democrats one other couple other things that are in the poll obviously it has the horse race on uh, presidential for 2020 um and you know reflecting the broader numbers on trump this the numbers are, are better for trump they're still well within the margin of error Um, the, the most noticeable change is Biden is, is just going under. Um, and there's also no evidence here of Buttigieg actually doing any better amongst Democrats, still the fourth performing, uh, in heads to head, you know, behind, um, uh, Biden, Sanders and Warren, which is, which is fascinating. Um, Claire, I don't know if you had any other thoughts on the head to head.
1: Um, I think that the, these are not changing a whole ton. Wisconsin hasn't really seen a ton of visitors. They're all still in Iowa right now. It'll be a it'll be a couple months before I think we see significant visits to Wisconsin by whoever is left in the primary. I also think we're seeing this surge of of Pete Buttigieg in Iowa. Um, I think it'll be interesting to see how that translates out of Iowa. Um, I think we saw, are we going to talk about the debate at all? (laughs) Um,
0: yeah, feel free. Go. Yeah. So
1: I think, um, I think we saw some sort of gaffes by Biden and, um, Buttigieg, um, around, um, like race and gender in the debate last night. Um, Iowa, um, it has a um, significantly smaller population of color than, than some of the upcoming states, like certainly than South Carolina, which is a, a state that's going to be up soon, certainly less than Wisconsin. So I think it'll be interesting once they have to leave um, a state like Iowa and come to states like Wisconsin and South Carolina, um, how big of a difference um, uh, sort of we're going to see and in, in how the people here react um, if they keep making those gaffes.
0: Yeah, no, it'll... Well, well, we'll definitely continue to to track uh, the Marquette poll as it comes out, uh, or as future ones come out. Um, but we are going to take a break. Um, when we get back, um, Robert Craig is going to rejoin us for a segment, and we're going to uh, talk about some other issues, prescription drugs, healthcare, some things that have been happening in the state. We're also, as I mentioned before, going to be joined by Milwaukee County Supervisor Supreme Lord Gunday and... With that, we're going to take a break. You are listening to The Battleground, Wisconsin. We're Citizen Action. You can find us at citizenactionwi.org. Welcome back to The Battleground, Wisconsin. Again, we're Citizen Action. You can find us at citizenactionwi.org. We have a special guest joining us. We have Milwaukee County Supervisor, Supreme Moore Mukunde. Welcome.
2: Good morning, God. Thanks for having me on, Matt. It's really good to be here on this podcast.
0: Well, we're really happy to have you. And we're going to dive into talking about the exciting work that you at the county and also the city of Milwaukee are doing around climate um, and, and addressing racial uh, economic inequity uh, in our city through through climate change or through uh, addressing climate Uh, But I also wanted to mention we're joined by Robert Craig. He's able to join us during the break from his conference. Robert, good to to, uh, talk to you.
3: Uh, Good morning. uh, From Princeton, New Jersey.
0: So, Supreme, uh, you have uh, the privilege. You are on a task force that um, has been created that citizen action has been heavily involved in trying to support uh, our organizer Raphael smith has been working uh, tirelessly on it but uh, why don't you uh, tell our listeners a little bit about um, what this task force is doing and and uh, some of the aspirations we have and then we'll we'll just go back and forth and and uh, get more into some of the details but Start by just giving our listeners a little bit of background as to what, we're tr- what what you're trying to do here in Milwaukee. So we all,
2: I think a lot of people are familiar with the uh, Paris Climate Accords and their goals of reducing um, emissions by 2030, 2050. There are different levels of the goal. Um, also, we, we know that we have a pending climate crisis um, happening if we look at the warming of, of waters, if we look at uh, uh, climate change, not just warmer climates, but also colder climates, polar vortexes, slipping out of Canada, slipping out of Antarctica um, down to, uh, is that Antar- Antarctica, but slipping out of the Arctic and, sli- and, and uh, slipping down um, to places like Wisconsin and Michigan. And you have places in like uh, the Midwest, in, in the North where elders are dying from heat in the summertime, where it's hotter than it than it typically has been, and so we're looking to address uh, these things and seeing how human interaction plays um, a role in creating these things, and we know that it does. Um, if if you look at emissions, if we look at the number of cars on the road, if we look at um, the factories, and if you go to places like Gary, Indiana, where it's just a big thick cloud of smoke over uh, over the city, we know that these things are taking place, and so. Um, there have been people who've been working on pushing back against climate change and um, greenhouse gas emissions and keeping the the oil in the soil, et cetera, for years, even before I was born. And so, I don't know if it's synergy or synergy. Maybe Dr. Craig can tell me which word is most appropriate. But we got a lot of people coming together um, who've been doing this work distinct from one another, but now we are all working in tandem and realizing that this is a crisis. And so. You had uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and others in, in D.C. who said, well, we need to put some fire under this. Uh, she stood on tables in um, Speaker Pelosi's office before she was sworn in. And um, they had the Sunshine Movement there and, um, you know, telling people what for. And so they were putting fire behind this and, and giving us a sense of urgency. And so um, I was approached um, by uh, coalitions of Mecca, um, the Milwaukee Energy... And I forgot what MEC is for, but it, but it's, it's <laughs> basically, it's basically uh, folks who are doing climate change and economic equity, um. Uh, and so they they came and approached uh, myself and uh, President Ashanti Hamilton and said to us, "Look, uh, can we talk? Get a meeting with you and Ashanti Hamilton to talk about, um, uh, you know, talk about climate change, and economic equity." And what I was really impressed by is that folks were just as focused on economic equity as they were on climate. And so that's what really attracted me um, because I, I've, I've known about you know pending climate change. I grew up in a household where uh, my mother made me walk around with bottles and, and cans if we didn't have a place to recycle it. And I, I grew up in a school where we were taught about climate change, etc. And so uh, it, it's really important that when we got to uh, President Ashanti Hamilton, he said, hey, okay, well, let's create this city-county task force on climate change and economic equity, and I'm going to, uh, I'm going to put my most dogged city council person on that task force in Nick Kovac. And so I was appointed by, um, by uh, the chairman, Theo Lipscomb, and uh, Nick Kovac was appointed by uh, President Ashanti Hamilton. And so we had our first meeting on November 11th. We had some great conversation. Um, the city talked about what their sustainability plans were. We have our guy Gordy from the county coming uh, on the 26th next Tuesday, and um, it's going to be great. Uh, and so, yeah, we're doing a lot of good stuff.
0: Robert, wanted to give you an opportunity. I know this has been an issue that uh, you've been working on uh, for years. Your thoughts on this ta- on the importance of this uh, task force?
3: Yeah, it is something that took three and a half years of planning and strategic planning. It's in action for us to get involved and help instigate this. I want to praise Supervisor Maura McCunde, because we can't do this sort of thing without this kind of visionary leadership and we need more leadership like this in Wisconsin and across the country. So he deserves a lot of credit for getting this started. It's the beginning of a long journey, folks need to understand. And so, frankly, here's the problem, right? We know the economy is a mess, that for 40 years, have people been losing ground, and people of color have been losing even more ground. And in Milwaukee, we have—we're literally the worst place in the country for African Americans to live, according to yet another national ranking that came out this week. And we're not doing anything to scale to address that problem. And in addition to that, we have a climate catastrophe that, if we do not fundamentally change—I mean, dramatically—our economy uh, by 2030, we have no hope of preventing a catastrophic climate change that would be genocidal in nature. If we do make the changes, if we do something along the lines of the resolution, the national resolution, the Green New Deal, we have a chance to limit the impact. There is still impact. We're about a degree Celsius hotter than any time in all of human history, the whole history of our species, and that's inevitable. The question is, is it only two more, in which case three total is destabilizing? If it's four, five, or six, it's genocidal. In fact, if it's six, it may be extinction. And so, and that's entirely possible right now because we are increasing greenhouse emissions each and every year. So this is very hard work. It's not happening at the national level. President Trump is doing the opposite. Um, some states are taking the lead. That's not Wisconsin because we have a gerrymandered legislature and Robin Voss and Dr. Gerald and Company will not do a darn thing. Tony Evers is committed and working with Mandela Barnes, with our lieutenant governor, uh, ought to plan, but they don't have the official authority to take action, so we have moved to the local level. And Milwaukee is not the only place. Uh, Madison and Dane County have a planning process. Eau Claire is very far along in a planning process. A number of other communities in Dane County. And La Crosse is initiated, and I probably missed some. There's a lot of activity, and the Milwaukee City-County Task Force that Supreme Mormacunde helped create, is part of that, it is the beginning of a journey. You have to develop a plan and a community consensus in order to get this level of change. You're going to have to bring in a lot of expertise. because There's a lot less tools that a local government has than a state government, and the state has much fewer than a federal. But nonetheless, they have a lot of tools. A city like Milwaukee spends a lot of money, and it spends a lot of money on economic development. It's not all tax revenue money. It's other capacity. And so, those all need to be unified if we're to meet these targets, because we literally have to hold ourselves accountable to cutting greenhouse emissions in half by 2030. Have a fighting chance. And if we don't do it in a way that actually improves economic opportunity for people locked out of the economy, then we're replicating all of the current level of oppression and inequality in our society. And in fact, this does not need to be. This is a critical lesson. This is so doable. It, uh, it sounds daunting, and I've made it sound daunting, but it is so doable that we could do this in a way that expands prosperity and creates a much more just society. In fact, globally, it will only take 1.5% of gross domestic product in order to meet these standards. So if there are space aliens out there, they're wondering if our species is smart enough to save itself by spending 1.5% of its wealth. So this is within our grasp, but it requires Very intensive planning, and I'm glad that's underway in Milwaukee and some other Wisconsin cities. We need to develop a social consensus to do this because there are, we know our our system of government is broken fundamentally because it is is drowned down not only by partisanship, by all the interests that benefit at the trough of government. And your average economic developers and the other people who get money spent on them. They're going to either need to be part of this or they're going to need to be taken on. And we need political power and a huge committee consensus and a huge base of average people involved to get it done. But if we dare can, we can not only prevent a catastrophe, we can create a much more just and prosperous society where the fruits and benefits of our society are for finally shared equally,
0: which has not happened. So we're going to have to take a break. On the backside of the break, though, I do want to dive into two key pieces in the next segment. One is just sort of the next steps for the task force and how people can get involved and how do we get people to build the movement that we're going to need to take on those interests Robert just talked about. But two, then, I do want to talk about we got an election next April, and the implications that this task force could have, and what are the kinds of questions we need to be asking folks running for office here in the county and the city uh, next April in order to make sure that not only does this task force succeed, but when we get to the heavy lifting of putting money and resources behind, that we have people there that are committed to it. With that, we're gonna take a break. You're listening to Battle Valley, Wisconsin with Citizen Action. Welcome back. Battleground Wisconsin, we're Citizen Action. We are lucky to have special guest Milwaukee County Supervisor Supreme Morum Gunde, and we are talking about the Milwaukee Green New Deal. And that is kicking off with a task force that is laying out a plan, and Supreme Moore is on that. Supreme, tell us a little bit more about where the task force is headed next, um, what are the key things that are going to happen, and um, what what would you encourage people like, who want to get involved and be a part of making sure that this is wildly successful?
2: So thanks for the, those questions. First and foremost, we had our first meeting on November 11th, um, where we laid down some of our ground rules. We talked about uh, public records and open meeting things because you're now officially a part of a government body and um, not having too many, not having walking quorums and and meeting outside of uh, our scheduled time, et cetera um and, and we talked about what all that meant i think uh alderman kovac and i understood that from our our current roles however people at the table we mean, wanted to make sure that they knew that we also talked about um this like i said the sustainability uh plans for the city we're going to talk about the counties net at our next meeting um i think one of the big things that we talked about was a potential partnership with we energies i think that it's important not to just Curse out we energies and tell them that you you know you're the devil, etc. Um, the the way is how do we get them involved in what we're doing um, if they're going to be there um, and helping us to transition? I think there's a lot of valid reasons why people are upset with we energies. However, I don't know if the if the idea is to tell them, um, kick rocks, we hate you, and we're going to take you down. I don't know if that's the answer currently. Um, I think that it's really important though that we have uh our, we know what we want to do. And we know that we want to reduce emissions. We know that we need cleaner energy, wind energy, solar energy, et cetera. Um, And we had a lot of great conversations. We even talked about um, uh, nuclear energy and and different things of that that nature and and how that it's not just uh, these gas emissions and so on and so forth. And there was a lot of great people who knew a whole lot more than I did even there. And so I'm, if if nothing more, I'm looking to learn from that process. So we just kind of figured out and laid things out um, at the first meeting. The next meeting, we're going to be talking about um, work groups, because we have 13 members on the task force from different, various different organizations and government entities. And there's a whole lot more people who want to get involved in this process. And so it's going to go beyond just those 13 individuals. And my statement was that these work groups or subcommittees or whatever we're going to call them are absolutely essential and necessary to the work that we're going to do within the next six months. Because even in six months, I think that we're going to have maybe a framework of some recommendations, but even that will require more work. Um, like uh, Dr. Craig said, that it's, going. It's you know, we're at the beginning of the process. And so um, I was at a meeting with with the uh Healthcare professionals who were talking about climate change on Saturday, and uh, Lieutenant Governor Mandela Barnes was there. And I pulled him to the side and I'm like, "Hey, do you have any room on your task force? I have this great person that would love to be a part of a task force, and they're doing some awesome work, but we don't have any room." And he's like, "Nah, I don't. You got any room on your task force?" And so, because he has the state task force, and so, and we've met with uh, the Lieutenant Governor a couple times uh, surrounding these issues. But we're gonna talk about work groups and. One of our members, Pam Fent, uh, is going to talk about how the workforce aspect of the climate change uh, task force is going to uh, have its, its effect as well. And so she, I specifically said, can we talk about this next time? Can we talk about how unions and other uh, uh, folks who work with workers are gonna be involved in this process and how do we make sure that, because um, uh, in my mind, there are gonna be people who are gonna say, oh, you, you have this climate uh, uh, catastrophe pending i'm going to come in and make some money off of that um and i'm going to put all the money in my pocket but if we're going to have folks doing jobs and working we want to make sure that they have living
0: wages etc and have the opportunity to be a part of unions and so well you're getting into like what the crux of what i think makes the milwaukee project unique mm-hmm. in terms of its focus on saying if we're going to have this massive historic restructuring of the economy to address climate change it is that kind of restructuring where we can actually start to address the just the humongous gap that we have in equality economic equity here in this in this city in fact we're we're, we're trying to undo white supremacy in the right, city right. and you don't do that you know just through small stuff it, this is a massive restructuring and it calls for this kind of thought about how do you do that and and address those historic inequities and I think that that's what's most exciting about this that this is going to have a lens on that and make sure that what you just talked about it just doesn't line the pockets of a few people that are well positioned uh, to profit and that this will actually uh, help all workers throughout our community and it will be targeted to the communities most in need right um,
2: because if you're not intentional about that that's in that's what ends up happening um, ends up happening all the time and so I think that it's important that uh, and what one of the coalition members um, that dr. Craig is familiar with Ted Craig said um, uh, <laughs> what he said was you, you know we had great depression levels were like peaked at 25 percent but it's been at least double that in African American communities amongst black men in the city of Milwaukee. And if it were that way for white men in the city that we'd be in the streets turning things up, we'd be finding money, we'd be shaking all the trees and turning people upside down for more dollars to have those gentlemen um, uh, have, have uh, employment opportunities. And so I think it's really important that we view that as a crisis as well. And if we don't view that as a crisis, then what are we really saying about other crises? Um, and so it's, it's, I think it's just really important that we combine these two, and I'm glad that we are, we've synergized or scissorized, whichever one. Like I said, Dr. Craigwood told me which one is more appropriate. Um, I think it's really important that we uh, bring these two together and view them both as crises and how they can both help one another.
3: Robert. Look, I think it's important on the equity front to understand, not, obviously, the people who are harmed the most by structural racism are people of color but it hurts everyone it makes the whole community poorer by leaving people on the sidelines or forcing them into substandard housing in in overpriced neighborhoods and not allowing them access to the, the american dream. and so this is something that's going to make us all more prosperous if we do it but requires a lot of organizing a lot of people to be involved and make a real commitment it's about the level of commitment you're willing to make because we, need, we are staging this out. Some people call it gas holding, where you, need, you have to build further and further power at each stage of the process. So we have the power now to have the city and county of Milwaukee and other places have done this as well, right, uh, to say that they're going to meet the Paris climate targets, the UN Intergovernmental, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change targets. And then the second stage, which is the task force, is actually starting to develop a plan. The next stage is going to be that we need money put into planning because it's very hard to figure out what to do. It's not clear what a local government can do. I mean, there are a lot of local governments and a lot of things around the country, but that needs to be analyzed for the Milwaukee area. And so that'll that's another test because it, local governments are strapped for money. If they won't put money into a planning process, it isn't happening. So that will be a test. And that will be a test of the task force, how strong the recommendations are and how much treaty the consensus there is, how many people have been involved. And politically, it must be a multiracial coalition. It just can't be uh, white middle class folks who it's in the environment. That would impact a very small part of the common council or the county board here. But if you include all of the African-American and Latinx representatives with the white environmentalists, then you have an overwhelming majority. And then there is actually, if we have the pay planning process, which is the second stage, full implementation, which means taking on the whole power structure and seeing who will play, because some parts of the power structure may play ball because there's going to be plenty of profit to do this. But what we can't have is the existing way of doing business occurring. You cannot keep building hotels, building strip malls, widening highways without any thought to what the overall climate impact is and how we're meeting the the emissions reduction target. So I'm not saying none of those things can happen. Some will still need to happen, but I'm saying overall we have to be reducing uh, greenhouse emissions, and so should you build a big glass skyscraper? Uh, The question is how you build it and what the standards are and and how much it increases emissions. If it does, where are you going to find other decreases because it requires even more of you? How Are you going to increase public transit and access to public transit? Whatever the mix is. And so this is hard work, but it is entirely doable. But we need people to commit. We need more people involved in volunteering and taking action at every stage. And so, my appeal to everyone is to come to these climate task force meetings, uh, come, bring your friends, bring your family. We are building a base in the African American and Latinx community to also work on this with white allies. But everyone has to make a commitment because if we're not committed individually to social change, it ain't happening. It doesn't matter. Uh, how eloquent uh, Supervisor Warren McCunday and Council President Ashanti Hamilton and others are. We need a lot of people making a commitment to make this happen, but we can make it happen. And I think we not only will we succeed, we have to.
0: So we actually are out of time. Um, part of making that happen, again, is the elections next spring. You need to be asking all your supervisors that are running for office, alders, county exec, mayors, about whether they're willing to actually fund a task force, make, get some real teeth in it, and that they'll be committed to make the tough decisions down the road. It is the defining question of these spring elections uh, to make sure that we can uh, transition uh, properly here. Uh, we got to transition out, so I want to thank supervisor supreme mora for joining us thank you so much thanks for having me and we want to wish you the best uh with this task force so folks we'll have the details make sure you get out again listen next week we'll be back here at the battleground wisconsin hopefully we'll have robert back in the studio to join us we want to thank our producer brian Wilbridge who makes it happen every week and we'll see you next week